you have your Bible with you, or you'd like to use one in the back of the pew, turn with me to the Gospel according to Mark, the New Testament book of Mark. Today we will start chapter 14 and look at verses 1 to 11. If you're a guest with us, or if you just started attending here at a certain point, you may not know that we have been, since October 2020, have been working through this gospel, according to Mark. We've taken some breaks, but for the better part of the last two years have been diving deep into this gospel, watching Jesus on the move, and thinking about what he teaches it looks like to belong to his kingdom. And Lord willing, we will wrap up this gospel before the holidays, if you listen fast enough. So we'll just see how you do on that. That was a joke. Thank you. All right. Mark chapter 14, verses 1 to 11. I want to think about with you this morning the beginning of the end. This is the word of the Lord. It was now two days before the Passover and the feast of the unleavened bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feasts, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priest in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. As of this week, my family, I, I feel it's safe to say, feels a little more Missouri in our bones. It's taken about four years, but as a family, we made our first trip up to St. Louis last week. Spent a couple days up there. Saw the sights, ate a lot of the food. Now, some of you will be very proud, and some of you won't care at all that we went to our first, Malachi and I, St. Louis Cardinals game. I am pleased to let you know they lost. Go Braves. 
what stood out to me was some of the history that was happening at the game. We were lucky enough to see the great Albert Pujols play that game. He was 0 for 5. We were also lucky enough to see Yachty, back catcher. And he hit two home runs in the game. Really special. What was unique, though, in the batting lineup, you had a sandwich of Hall of Famers. Albert Pujols batted sixth, and Yachty batted eighth. And tucked in the middle was this young guy. I don't even remember his name, but he was playing his first game ever. I just thought, how cool would that be to be that guy, to be able to say that he got to bat in between these two Hall of Famers at the end of their career for his first game in the majors. I don't think that the manager, when he set that lineup, had any you know, grand schemes for this kid when he put him in the lineup like that, but it reminded me of the book of Mark. Now, what does all that have to do with this passage? Really nothing except the form. If you've been with me for a little bit, you'll remember that Mark likes to make sandwiches. And just like happened at that baseball game, Mark sets up the lineup here in a similar way. Instead of Hall of Famers, you'll notice if you look at the passage in verses 1 to 2 and verses 10 to 11, Mark talks about the plan to kill Jesus. So verses 1 to 2 is Pujols. And verse 10 to 11 is Yadi. But Mark is very intentional with his sandwiches. And if you've been with me for a while, you'll know that what he's doing is setting up his main point in the middle. That's what he wants you to see. That rookie, which is verses 3 to 9, where the woman anoints Jesus. Mark is crafting all of this, this lineup, to let you know an important truth up front as we get this close to the cross. And I'm just going to tell you what it is right now so that you can hold on to it the rest of the time as we journey through this lineup. Brothers and sisters, for everything that is about to happen, God knows and has it under control. Mark wants you to know that before Peter denies Jesus. Mark wants you to know that before Judas betrays Jesus. Mark wants you to know that before Jesus is crucified and it looks like he lost. For everything that is about to happen, God has it under control. And I promise I'm going to get to your neighborhood, but I'll just go ahead and give it to you now for free. It doesn't matter what is going on in your life, what season of life you're in, brothers and sisters. Whatever is about to happen, whatever you wake up to tomorrow, God knows and has it under control. Now, in this story of conspiracy and compassion, death lingers over all of it. But our Lord is the light that overcomes the darkness. He is the one that walks through the valley of the shadow of death. I don't have any points for you today. I'm just going to walk through this passage so you keep it open, keep up with me. But verse 1, you'll notice Mark says that this starts two days before the Passover. We're going to spend a lot of time thinking about the Passover next week. But at this special time, at this special holiday, the entire city of Jerusalem gathers to celebrate God rescuing Israel 
Israel out of Egypt. Jewish pilgrims from all over come not only to remember what God did in Moses' day, but in hopes and in anticipation of what God might do in their day as they pray for a new exodus, a rescue from the Roman Empire. And now that the Messiah has come and they don't even know, but their prayers are answered, the religious leaders are game planning to execute the rescue. And the text says at the end of verse 1 that they want to do it by stealth. They don't want to do this during the feast because they don't want an uproar. See, Jerusalem was a lot like one of our great college towns. If you go to Tuscaloosa, if you go to, I don't know another college town like Tuscaloosa, you think of one. And you go in the summertime, ghost town, right? There's no one there. It is as if the town doesn't exist. But then right about this time of year, that first Monday when school starts, hello, all the kids are moving in the dorms, there's traffic that you have to watch out for, there's actually people. But then on Saturday, the whole state comes into town. And the population explodes. Friends, in reality, that's how Jerusalem was. At Passover, it was like game day. And everybody from Israel was in town. And so if the priests and the scribes were going to pull off their their execution, this was the worst time to do it. Because everybody's around. And they're going to get caught red-handed. And so their plan was to wait until summertime to when it was a ghost town again. But if you know the end of the story, God has other plans. Jesus is going to die a very public death. And right in the middle of the football game, at the Passover, the firstborn is going to be slain for the people of God. Because as the king's And the rulers take counsel together, like the psalmist says, Psalm 2, verse 4 to 6. He, the Lord, who sits in the heavens, laughs, and the Lord holds them in derision. He will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And that is what is happening before our eyes. But then as we continue to read and Look at verses 3 to 9. Mark takes us behind the curtain to see what's really going on as God sets up his king. The action, you see in verse 3, takes us back outside the city to Bethany. If you remember, this is where Jesus was camping out before he came into town on the donkey. Likely Mary and Martha's house. Simon could be their father. All of the drama in Mark centers, though, not on the woman, but on this very special bottle of perfume. And Mark uses four different phrases in the Greek to describe this bottle to emphasize that this is the point of the drama. You'll see that it is an ointment of pure nard. Now, what you should know about pure nard is it comes directly from India. Think about this. If 
1,500 years later, Christopher Columbus stranded himself on an American island trying to get a hold of some Indian spices. This stuff was top shelf. In the first century, this was as, as rich as you could get, as, as an important of a family heirloom as you could get. Later, when the people start griping, they say, this could have been sold for 300 denarii. You know how much that is? That's how much a Jewish brother would make in one year, the whole year working a full-time job. If you go back to Mark 6, Jesus fed the 5,000 for what was estimated to be about 200 denarii. And so this bottle of ointment was worth more than that entire picnic, 30% more. This is a big deal. When this woman takes this high-end perfume, how does she handle it? She's not careful with it at all. She is not the person you would trust with your fancy china for your Easter dinner. She's more like a kid running through the house. You're just really nervous what they're about to do. Look, she breaks open the whole bottle. She breaks it and lets every drop flush down on top of Jesus. Not a single drop of the perfume is saved. And because of that, no one's ever going to be able to take this really high-end flask and reuse it as maybe a flower vase or a, a, a talking piece of furniture in their living room. It's shattered. It's gone. Never going to use it again. I mean, if you did that with one of your grandma's antiques, how would your family react? That's why the people in the room blow up. The language Mark uses to describe the interaction, they're basically growling like dogs at her, snarling at this inconsiderate, rude behavior that has just messed everything up. Look at what she's wasted. Think of the potential. Friends, I got something for you here. It doesn't matter what people think. It matters what Jesus thinks. This woman is the center of attention in this room because of all that they think she's done wrong. And if they all took a vote, she's the one off the island. But friends, she's the only one right. And the majority vote is wrong. Because it doesn't matter what people say about you. It matters what Jesus says about you. And we could all do better if we cared a little bit less about what the majority says about us and we care about what Jesus says. I hope that helps somebody. Verse 6, Jesus says, She has done a beautiful thing to me. Friends, this is the key that unlocks this passage. Because what Jesus says next trips people up. He says, you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. And friends, people get confused by that. I grew up, and people use this as the reason why we don't do charity. 
and the reason why we shouldn't bother with, with giving to people on the street. Jesus said, don't worry about it. You don't have to give to them. That is not the point here. The point is about Jesus. She's done a beautiful thing to me. Friends, this is what Jesus is saying. You will always have the poor. And anytime you want to sell a perfume and give to them, anytime you want to give to them on the street, anytime you want to do a fundraiser and do a charity for them, go for it. But I am not going to be around forever. You don't know this, but my last week starts now. The clock is ticking. This woman, she may not even know what, exactly what she's done, but while the scribes are out plotting my death, she has anointed me for burial. Brothers and sisters, that's the word that unlocks the whole thing. What she has done with this high-end perfume and breaking it like when Jesus breaks the bread the night before he dies. He sees in her action a preparation for his death on the cross for you and me. The issue, brothers and sisters, I want you to connect with this because I'm going to come back to it later. And if you don't see this, what I say later is going to sound like it is from out of nowhere. The issue, brothers and sisters, is not the poor. The Bible is clear that the poor matter to God. The issue Jesus is dealing with is time. The reason she did a good thing and not giving to the poor and giving to Jesus was because the time was ticking. And she needed to do what was best in that moment. It's what Paul's talking about in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 16, when he calls us to be making the best use of the time because the days are evil. And if there were ever evil days, it was those last couple days before Good Friday. And this woman is making the best use of her time. All right, I'm coming to you. Ready? Listen to what Jesus is teaching. When you're this close to death, you cannot focus on the everyday, routine, mundane stuff. When you're this close to the end, you cannot be status quo. You cannot operate based on common sense. When time is this short, when stakes are this urgent, even the good is no substitute for the best. Now hold on to that. All of this talk, the disciples have heard it over and over again, all of this talk about death had to be depressing, had to be confusing to the people around Jesus because they, they still didn't understand the way of the cross. But even here as Jesus talks about his burial, he's not talking about a sad story. He's not talking about bad news. That's why it's Good Friday. He's telling them something that is a story of hope. When he talks about burial, he's talking about good news. And let me prove it to you. Look at verse 9. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. 
Notice what Jesus is saying here. The story's not over. There's coming a day where this story will be proclaimed. This gospel, this good news is going to go out. And look, it's not even going to be confined into Jerusalem. It's about to go global. It's about to be viral. This story is about to go places it's never been before. Friends, he's letting them know in the room as she breaks open this rich ointment over his head that death will not be the last word for him. When I rise again, Jesus says, and when my spirit sends this story to the ends of the earth, then the people will understand how important what this woman did was, that she wasted nothing. And friends, that's the That is the way of the cross. That's the point of the book of Mark. This woman is illustrating the point of the book of Mark. Look at Mark 8, verse 36. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What does it profit a woman to hold on to a rich ointment and lose the opportunity to bless her Christ? Friends, she took up her cross and followed Jesus. This is what discipleship looks like. Breaking open the most important, most valuable things in your life and crushing them over Jesus' head and saying, this is for you. And that's why this woman is sandwiched right next to Judas. Because while the woman is willing to toss everything aside for Jesus, one of the 12 is ready to toss Jesus aside for some pocket change. Because he is the opposite of the way of the cross. He's trying to gain the world and he's losing his soul. Friends, if Mark had put verses 3 to 9 anywhere else, you might be left to wonder, reading this, if Judas had caught God off guard. If Judas's betrayal had caught Jesus napping. But Jesus, while all of that politics and conspiracy is going on, accepts this ointment for his burial to prove to everyone for all of history that whatever happens next, God knows and has it under control. Friends, when the scribes planned to kill Jesus away from Passover, God was sovereign over the calendar. When the people in the room ridiculed the woman's gift, God was sovereign over how that message would be told from then on. When his disciples sold Jesus out, God was sovereign even over the death. And we'll see later in this chapter, Mark 14, verse 21. Jesus says, For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Friend, at the end of the beginning of the gospel according to Mark, Mark wants you to have confidence in the one who knows the end from the beginning. 
He wants you to not just know God knows things, not just to know that God has it under control. He wants that to resonate in your soul so that when you walk through the darkest of days leading up to your cross, you have trust and you have rest and you have confidence in the one who numbers your days. And friends, that starts with letting Jesus' work count for you. In our sin, we are not the woman in the story. We are Judas. Every single one of us have betrayed our Savior. And in our place, God became like the woman and sacrificed what was most precious in his house and crucified his own son in our place so that the betrayers could become precious little children, so that we could belong to him. Jesus was broken in our place like that vase, and not one drop of his blood was wasted. Isaiah 53, verse 9, the prophet says, They made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. And the gospel is proclaimed throughout the world because the story didn't stop there. On the third day, Jesus rose from the grave to prove that salvation belongs to the Lord. And the way to life with him is to give everything up. To give everything to the Savior. Mark 8 verse 35 says, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, if you will lose your life for my sake, the gospel, he will save it. Friends, have we got to the point? I know that we believe in God. But have we got to the point where we're ready to embrace the cross to the point that we will lose our life? And not just in some metaphorical sense about some martyrdom that will never happen. But we actually give up everything that is valuable and important and precious to us so that we can have our Savior. Have you ever got to that point where you put that sacrifice on the line? Or are you still holding on to what you can get and some change in your pocket? Friend. Come to the Lord Jesus Christ today. Give him your all. When you do that, you can always rest in the truth that Mark is proclaiming for the rest of your life. It doesn't matter what comes your way. Whatever happens next, God knows and has it under control. And for everyone in the room, brothers and sisters, why did God bring that text to you and that truth to you today? Why do you need to believe that today? What's going on in your life that's got you sleepless, so stressed out, unsure, unsettled? Friends, believe that God knows. Believe that God is with you. Believe that God can make all things work together for good. Friends, people may be out to get you like the scribes were. People may not understand you like the people in the room with that woman. People may outright betray you like Judas did Jesus. But friends, the truth is nothing can thwart God's plans for you. 
Nothing can get in the way of God's promises for you. Every promise is yes in Christ Jesus for you. Listen to the prophet Isaiah's word for you this morning. Isaiah 40, verse 27 to 31. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, that my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Friend, that promise does not return void. Whatever God wants you to walk through, he will give you the strength to not grow weary, to not grow faint, if you will not walk through it by yourself. I think God also brought this text here today to this people on this day for a special reason. Go back with me to the house at Bethany. Verses 3 to 9. The crowd does not understand what God is doing. They are dogging this woman for her stupidity, her foolishness, her wastefulness. And when Jesus defends the woman, his whole point is not who she is or anything about the ointment. It's about the time. It's about what is proper to be done in the days leading up to his death. And again, the the point of all of that that I shared earlier, Jesus is teaching, friends, when the time is urgent, you cannot focus on the mundane. When the time is critical, you cannot be status quo. Even the good in that moment gets in the way of the best. Friends, there is more than one way that God is calling us to grasp the urgency of the hour. Friends, have you woken from your slumber and realized how urgent the day is? Are you just living life, business as usual, like nothing matters, and you're not observing what is going on in front of you? How many days do you have left? Now, some of you are at a point in your life that you know it's not many. But friends, this weekend should prove it doesn't matter how old you are. You might not got one left. And you're living like you're immortal. Do whatever you want. You'll get to living for God later. Friend, when the time is urgent, you cannot focus on the mundane. And the reality is the time is always urgent. Because even if you have plenty of days left, friends, the world might not have that many days left. And Jesus may be coming back before you know. Every single one of us has an urgent hour. And we have friends and family 
living apart from the Lord. We have a message to be proclaimed across the world, and we're sitting on it. Friends, do you recognize the urgency of the hour for our church family in this community? Friends, we've been so inward focusing on the struggles here over the last 20 years that we have lost the pulse of this community. They noticed a new church coming into town, but do they notice us anymore? And friends, instead of recognizing the urgency of the hour and the time at hand, we are like the people in the room bickering over flasks of oil. Focused on the mundane. Thinking about the things that are precious to us instead of the mission at hand. Friends, there are three ways that we can, as a people and as individuals, respond to the urgency of the hour. And they're all here in the text. We can be like the crowd and get so caught up in the minor things in life that we lose focus on what's happening. We can be like Judas, and we can die because we're out for selfish gain. Or we can be like the woman and show sacrificial love that looks crazy to the world because we're willing to give up everything to Jesus. Friends, I could be talking about a lot of different things. It all fits. I could be talking about God's plan for this nation, God's plan for this church, God's plan for your life here on earth, God's plan for all of human history. But the truth remains, even if this is the beginning of the end, Everything that is about to happen, God knows, and God has it under control. Can we be a people of faith who walk by faith and not by sight? And even when the obstacles come and it looks dark and it looks like things are over, that we can trust God enough, that we can believe He knows. And walk with them. May we be that kind of people. May we be like this woman and sacrifice everything for Jesus when it looks silly, when it looks ridiculous, when it looks foolish, because we know the way of the cross is to lose everything so we may gain Christ. May that always be true of us. Let's pray.